Welcome to My Third Kidney. I'm Nath Rembach. For this episode, I interviewed the incredible Stephanie Shabanovitz. Stephanie is a teacher, a kidney patient since she was 15, and a patient advocate. She has many great stories about her journey through kidney care. I find her stories of resiliency especially inspiring, and I'm honored to be able to share some of those stories with you today. Let's get started with Stephanie's story about a presentation she gave to her entire school body about kidney disease during Kidney Awareness Month. Our school has something called town meeting where for three Fridays a month, the entire student body and the staff meet in the auditorium and the students are able to put forth, kind of like our Congress does, they can put forth ideas of things that what they want to see in the school. Some things that have been passed might be like, we want to run a, a lunchtime sports club and they get permission from the school to have it and they see how many people are interested And if there's enough interest, it'll get passed and they can have lunchtime sports. They also have senior capstone presentations. The seniors will talk about what their end of the year project is that they need to graduate. So I started seeing them doing awareness campaigns for their capstones. And I'm like, you know, it'd be pretty neat to have a staff member do one. And, you know, it'd be pretty neat if I did one and let my community here at school know what I go through on a daily basis. So I put together a PowerPoint and it just explained what kidney disease is and the different symptoms, the fact that not many people know they have kidney disease until it's already at like a stage three or stage four, because there really aren't many symptoms. I told them the highest risk factors being teenagers, I'm like being a diabetic, being overweight. Unfortunately, people of color and of minority populations are more apt to having kidney failure because they are the populations that end up unfortunately having those comorbidities that cause kidney disease. And our school has a wide range of populations. So I kind of wanted our kids to know early, like, this is what you need to watch out for. So you don't end up with this disease. I talked about the different treatment options, I kind of explained them. And then at the end, I told everyone that like, the reason I gave this presentation is it's kidney disease awareness month, and I'm a kidney patient. And this is what I go through. A lot of the staff already knew, but a lot of the students did not. So a lot of the students were pretty, you know, intrigued that this is something I do on a daily basis. And I even had like a student be like, wow, I never knew you went through that. And I was like, well, it's just my life now. It's, it's not something that I wallow over. And I, you know, I just live my life now and I wanted to teach you all about it. So hopefully you don't have to live this life too. But it was just really cool. And I got a small little shout out for it in the yearbook at the end of the year. So that was, that was a nice little cherry on top. That's awesome. I told him about different like celebrities and athletes that have been on, have kidney disease or been on dialysis or have had a transplant just to show them even famous people get affected. So I thought, I think that clicked with them that, wow, these, you know, Selena Gomez and Sarah Hyland and this football player, they all have kidney disease and we never would have known because they're so successful. You know, I, I kind of wanted to show them that like, just because you have an, an illness doesn't mean you can't fulfill your dreams. That's awesome and very inspiring. Yeah, it was, it was definitely worth doing. Our student population, our staff are really 
awesome. Like we're very open with each other about things that are going on in our lives. Um, so for them, it was just like another Friday town meeting, like, oh, okay, she's, she's like, can be patient, whatever. She's still Stephanie. We'll still give her trouble maybe in class later. Um, yeah, it was just maybe. another, yeah, it was just another regular Friday. Like nothing really changed. I mean, they, they kind of realize now, like when we have field day, why I might be slower than everyone else or why I can't participate in certain activities, but it's just the same old, same old. Educating yourself on renal disease is actually really hard. It is. Yeah, I agree. One thing that fascinated me about your story is that you were able to educate yourself on renal disease really well. It really started with just wanting to know more because when I first walked in and met my nephrologist for the first time, I had no idea what he was talking about. So that definitely was a key in me wanting to learn more. When I was diagnosed, I was 15. I'm pretty sure I was the youngest patient my doctor had. And on top of it, I have other, I had other health conditions that were diagnosed at the same time. So on top of that, it made it even more difficult to treat my kidney disease. I remember my renal nephrologist at Yale saying, if I could transplant you now, I would. But because of all the things you're going through on other conditions, I can't. So I definitely wanted to learn more about transplant. I started off on peritoneal. It was, you know, my choice. I was still in school when I started dialysis. I was actually starting my sophomore year of college. But my doctor was pretty thorough in explaining all the different options to me between hemo and peritoneal. But the more research I did between hemo and peritoneal, I knew that PD would work better because I could do it at night when I was sleeping in the dorm. I didn't have to miss school. I could still go to classes. I also worked part-time every weekend, so I could still come home and work and bring the machine with me. I did that up until I got transplanted. And then after transplant, I couldn't go back to PD because I had peritonitis. It was so bad that the doctor was like, yeah, you need to go to hemo. I didn't have a choice to go to hemo at that point. About a year or two into hemo at the center, the charge nurse kept saying, oh, Stephanie, you'd be great for home hemo. You'd be great for home hemo. And I kept saying, no, no, no. I don't want to stick myself. I don't want to deal with the needles. I started looking more into it and watching videos on YouTube and looking at the DeVita website and learning more about what home hemo actually entailed. So I actually talked to the charge nurse and said, okay, I, I'm kind of interested now. The nurse explained it really well, showed me visuals and explained everything. And it was with his guidance that I decided to switch to home, which I've now been doing since March of 2013. I stuck myself my first training session right off the bat. I'm like, if I'm going to have to do this every day for the rest of my life, possibly, I need to just get it done and over with. But now with home hemo, I'm starting to look more into possibly getting transplanted. So I'm doing more research about my condition, which is FSGS. The big name is focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. And what it basically means is all the little channels and canals and arteries and veins in the kidney scar, which is sclerosis to the point where they just don't filter, they don't work. So through my research and talking to my doctors, I found out I have primary, which means that it is more than likely going to come back in a transplanted kidney. So I'm actually going to Hartford in a couple months to be seen by their transplant surgeon to see what their opinion is. I'm still on the list. I'm still accruing time. I'm just on hold until we figure out 
is transplant even a viable option at this point? Um, but like I said, I'm, I'm really into learning more about artificial kidneys and where we are with that. You got to be really careful about what you read because some are saying, oh, they're out there, they're in human trials. And then when you dig deeper, that's not true. And even kidney dialysis machines that are portable that you can wear, you don't have to be hooked up three, four hours a day. That I'm really interested in learning more about. I was actually talking to my mom about it a few days ago. That'd be really cool to have that come out pretty soon because, you know, there's a lot of travel things I want to do and I don't want to be strapped down by dialysis and have to go to a clinic. So those are really two major things that I keep an eye on. I follow AKF, AAKP, NKF, all the different kidney foundations on Facebook and social and see what they're posting if there's any news coming out. I also educate myself about legislation in Congress that's affecting our population and why it's important to write your senators and write your representatives about these bills that are possibly going to change everything for us. It's, it's important to know, you know, what our government wants to pass or not pass that's going to affect us for good or bad. I've been advocating with AKF since 2013. I've been doing AAKP for, I think, two years now. I went to D.C. three times on behalf of AKF to speak to the offices of our senators and our representative. I actually had a meeting with our representative in probably like 2014, just him, me, and my brother and my dad came with me to, you know, kind of give a, a caregiver's point of view on the bill that was in Congress at the time. Right now, I'm doing the 37-mile challenge through AKF. What that is, is walking 37 miles in the month of August to raise awareness for the 37 million Americans living with some form of kidney disease. With AAKP, I've actually spoken to a pharmaceutical company in Boston about taking their medication and what it means to be a kidney patient that needs to live on phosphorus binders. Because they know from like their point of view as a pharmacist or you know, hearing from nephrologists what it is, but they had never actually heard from a kidney patient's point of view. I lived closest, and when they put the call out, I volunteered. I was able to go up and speak to them, and kind of like we're doing now, they would ask me questions, and I would answer from a patient perspective. My brother came with me because we just made it a weekend of it, um, hanging out in Boston when I got done, and we were in Faneuil Hall, and I heard my name get called, and I turned around, and you know, I didn't recognize this person. I'm like, how did they know me? And he said, like, oh, I was at your talk earlier today, and I really appreciate you coming and giving us a patient's point of view. He's like, we had never heard from a patient before. Um, so hearing what it means to be a patient and taking this medication really meant a lot to us to know, like, what can we do better for patients? How can we market? How can we help patients further understand why phosphorus binders are important? So, yeah, advocacy for me is a huge part of my journey with kidney disease. Without dialysis, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I mean, 100 years ago, it was a death sentence. It's just, that's why I'm so, you know, passionate about educating and advocating. It's, our lives are literally on the line. I also follow RSN, which is a patient-run support group. This, the woman's been living wow. with kidney disease almost her whole life, and she started wow. a, a nationwide support group, which is pretty cool. I met her in D.C., so there's a lot of different support groups and advocacy groups out there that people can get involved in if they want to do more. You mentioned phosphate binders. Yep. Phosphate binders are one of those things that I didn't learn about 
in kidney disease until I had been working in it for maybe two or three years. And when I found out, I was shocked. I learned that patients would take several pills per day. And I mean, not just one or two, sometimes five, sometimes six, sometimes 10, 10, 12, right? It's, it's incredible. It's incredible just to control phosphate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then I started looking into it more. And I, I realized that from eating food alone, there's so much phosphorus in the protein yep. that it's not inconceivable. It's actually average. So the average individual with an average diet would consume something on the order of a gram of phosphate. Per, per day, per day. And you, you can't really ask him not to or her not to because if you stop eating as much protein, you start to degenerate. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, so, it's, so I'm really curious what your experience is with phosphate because I've never actually heard the patient perspective on this. It's really hard with phosphorus. My phosphorus is honestly the, the thing I struggle the most with as a kidney patient. I've, I'm currently on 12 binders a day if I eat three meals. Wow. Um, I take two Renvella and two Orixia per meal. It took a while to find the right combination of phosphorus binders for me. I would be on one and it would work for a year or two. And then my phosphorus would skyrocket. So they would switch it to another one and it would work for a year or two. And then my phosphorus would skyrocket. My body would get so adapt to it that it just stopped working. I've been on, I think every single phosphorus binder that is known to the kidney community right now, at some point in my journey, I didn't actually start taking binders till I started dialysis. When I first started dialysis, I followed a super strict renal diet. I pretty much cut almost everything out of my diet at college, eating in the dining hall. It was awful. As the years gone on, my diets become more lenient. Once they found the right combination of binders and I started home, my phosphorus has been pretty average. Um, It's on the higher side of acceptable, but it's still acceptable levels. So I can eat a little bit more dairy than maybe a, a new patient who's just starting and whose phosphorus is kind of wacky because. They haven't started, they've just started dialysis, so their body is just getting rid of it. So I'll have yogurt, like Greek yogurt, even my dietitian, because I don't have much of an appetite. I have GI issues. She said Greek yogurt's really good because it's high in protein. Because my phosphorus is in range, I can have the dairy part of it. Um, So that's one way I get my protein, even though it's high in phosphorus, I'll take binders with it. But that's just mainly because I like it, it gets the protein. I'm not a big red meat eater, so I get a lot of my protein just from poultry. I don't eat fish. I don't eat seafood. Nuts are high in phosphorus, but they're really high in protein. So I might have nuts maybe once a week with binders to just bring that, you know, again, get some extra protein. Eggs are really good, and they're low in phosphorus, so I eat a lot of eggs. I really like eggs for breakfast, so I'll make an egg sandwich. I'll make an omelet. I'll make scrambled eggs. I'll have egg salad, hard-boiled egg. But there was a point in my dialysis when I was still on, I think, PD, where my phosphorus was 
at like a 10 and the acceptable highest level is a 5.5. And I remember I was at my clinic and I was just sobbing. And I'm like, I don't know how to do this. I don't care anymore. I quit. I'm done. And my nurse is like trying to remind me, if you quit, there's no life. You're done. There's no coming back if you quit dialysis. And I'm like, why can't I just, I'm like, I even had a notebook and they look and they're like, you are sticking to the diet. We can't figure out why your phosphorus is so high. So they called the doc and the doc prescribed more, a different binder and that started working. But like I said, they worked for maybe a year or two and then it would start creeping back up into the sevens and the eights. I think I started this combination about five years ago and it's been working for this long. My phosphorus when I went last month was five one. So my doctor's like, you just got to watch it. You know, you're within range, but it's kind of in the higher end. But it's something that I've, I've gotten under control since I first started dialysis 16 years ago. It's wow. definitely a journey with phosphorus, especially when you're first starting and you're trying to figure it out. And, you know, your friends are like, hey, have some of this. Or, and you, you have to politely be like, I can't. And I mean, like I said, for me being on home hemo, my diet's more lenient than even those in center where they're only dialyzing three days a week and I'm dialyzing five days a week. So I'm getting more of those toxins and minerals and nutrients uh, filtered more often than in center. Even PD, I had a hard time and I was doing it every night on PD. So I think it was just having to grow up and mature a little bit and realize that this is serious that made me realize like, okay, I have to, I have to do what I need to do in order to live healthy. Do you think that home dialysis is a part of why your phosphate is more easy to control now? Definitely. I've dialyzed five days a week instead of the traditional three in center. Yeah. And I'm so in center, I would dialyze three days a week for three hours. So I'd get nine hours of dialysis a week at home. I, I dialyze about two hours. So I'm getting it a 10 hours a week. So I'm getting that extra hour. So the more, I think the more frequent too, it's not like I get done. I have a day of rest. I go back. I have a day of rest. I go back. I have a two days of rest. I go back. Now it's I normally dialyze three days in a row, have one skip day, two days, have a second skip day, and then start over again. So I think that definitely has something to do with it. The more frequent dialyzing, being in control more of my treatments and when I do them and the time I do it. If I know I have plans, I'll dialyze first thing in the morning so I have the afternoon free. If I'm just lounging around, I'll dialyze in the afternoon. When I go back to work, I'll dialyze after school. And my two skip days, I make for two school days. That way I'm not rushing to get home and being on my machine till seven, eight o'clock at night. So it's a really lenient schedule. And I, like I said, I think by doing it more and having the more filtration and the more toxins taken out more frequently that my phosphorus and my potassium and all those other numbers are a lot more in range than when I was in center. Are you using the next stage instrument? Yes. Yep. Okay. I'm awesome. using the um the pure flow. It's heavy. Yeah. It's about it's Big. about 50 pounds on its own. And then that's just for the dialyzer machine. And then underneath is a huge black box, for lack of a better word, where the actual solution is made. 
And that's probably another 50 pounds. So together, they're 100. And then if you want to travel, you bring the white part with you and you have to put it in a special box and that makes it like 100 pounds. Oh, God. So it's, it's, it's heavy. Um, even my, my younger brother, who's taller, and more muscular than I am, he struggles with carrying it. It's small, but it's heavy. And there's a lot of parts to it. If one part breaks, you have to get a whole new machine. And then if you don't do something right, the alarms go off. It was definitely a learning experience when I came home for the first month or two and the alarms would keep going off. And it's, you know, always referring to the, the guidebook, the troubleshooting book. But it just amazes me the size of this dialyzer for, versus what you would get in center, how it's smaller, but it does the same job. It just, it, it blows my mind the first time. I was like, wait a minute, I'm not getting what they get in center. I'm getting this little thing. And it took a little while to learn how to hook it up, just like it would with a PD machine. Different tubes go different places and different knobs and different this and making sure there's no air in it and whatnot. I, I picked it up pretty quickly. It was, it was first coming home. And since then now, if I have a major problem, I call my nurse or I call tech support. So it's a pretty cool machine. It's, it's, it does the, what it needs to do, and it's awesome. You can schedule it when you need to. There's a lot less diet restrictions, a lot less fluid restriction. The only thing is it takes up a little bit of room. You get a lot of boxes and you've got to use your own water. It's the only yeah. downsides to it is it takes, depending on what size your solution you got to make, it can take 60 liters of water for three treatments. I'm always impressed by next stage patients or for that matter, any dialysis patients because you have to integrate this extra thing in your life that other people don't have to do. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's not insignificant. It's a big extra thing. Yeah. I mean, my, my nephrologist basically told me at this point, my, my kidneys are the size of raisins. Like that's how gone they are. They're so, you know, they've been through so much and they've sclerosed so much that they're not even the size of regular kidneys anymore. So my kidneys do nothing. My kidneys are shot. So without dialysis, like it, there would be no, there's no function left at all in my kidneys. So dialysis does everything for me. But like you said, it's especially if you do in center, it, you don't get to pick your shift either. I mean, yeah. if they're full in the morning, you have to go afternoon. If they're full in the afternoon, you have to go in the evening. So you really schedule your entire day around, okay, I have morning treatments. So that means I have my day free. But when you get done, it's exhausting. I would come home when I did in center and I would just like veg, at, veg around my house or take a nap or whatnot because I was just exhausted from it. When I first started, it was in the hospital. So it was whenever the hospital had time for me on you know my day. If it was... The morning I'd go in the morning if they didn't have you know a room if they didn't have room on a machine till five in the evening I didn't go till five in the evening. When I started PD, I knew I was doing it at night, so that was really helpful. But it was still nine and a half hours of being connected to a machine at night. So I would you know I had activities I did in college and I had friends and I you know I had things I wanted to do. And I'd have to be like, okay, guys, I have to go. I got to go do my dialysis now. I'll see you guys in the morning. I'll talk to you in the morning. So there were days where I'd, you know, I'd have to bail out on things or 
I would stay up late and do what I wanted to do. And then I was stuck on the machine till 10, 11 o'clock in the morning because I wanted to do the college experience. I wanted to go to the movie. I wanted to go to the all night college sponsored thing. I wanted to just hang out with my friends and watch movies. But then when I switched to, like I said, in center, there was no option of what time I went. Luckily for me, I got the morning shift when I first started. I had to be there by six in the morning and I sometimes wouldn't be out till 10, 30, 11. Like the treatment might take three, four hours, but you also have to get set up. You have to get cannulated. You have to get disconnected. You have to wait for the, the blood to clot in the, in the site, the cannulation sites. You have to make sure that you're not, your blood pressure is not too low. You have to make sure that your weight isn't too low. You would think, oh, great, I got the morning shift, but it was not till 11 o'clock in the morning that you'd be getting done. Now with Home Hemo, it, I, I'm able to work full-time. I work from, currently the hours might change with the whole education thing and hybrid schooling. So that's still up in the air. But right now, I'm at school by 6.30. I get done by 2. I'm home by 2.45. I'm on my machine by 3.45. I'm off the machine by 6.15. And then I still have to eat dinner and I have to get schoolwork graded. And I have to, you know, I just want to spend time with my family. It takes a lot of time out of your day to do dialysis, like you said. I mean, it's just there's days where I'm like, I just don't want to do it today. Mm-hmm. And I know I get two skip days, but I normally schedule them for the week well ahead of time. Like if I know I'm going out with my friends, I'm like, okay, I'm going to skip Friday because I'm going out. And I don't know what time I'm getting home. And I don't want to have to rush home. But then I know on Saturday, it's like, okay, I have the weekend free. And now I have to find three, four hours to do my treatment. So it definitely takes up a big part of your life. It, it becomes like a part-time, when you think about it, it's a part-time job. Like I said, I'm on for about, from setup to takedown, it's about three hours. Five, it's about 15 hours a week that I'm doing dialysis. Yeah. So definitely it, is, it takes. That's definitely a part-time job. Yeah. And you're not getting paid for it. You have to pay to do it. Joy, aren't you special? Oh, that, that's the running joke with my, with my previous nephrologist. He just retired. We, he'd be like, well, you're the special one. So that, that's a running joke even in my family. My mom always be like, remember, it's because you're special. So, <laughs> yeah. I'll even, I even signed like, his, his, the last Christmas card I gave him, your special patient. So, yeah, that's definitely a running, a running thing between myself and my, my nurses and nephrologists and my family, the special. That's cute. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta live your life the rest of your life with it until, you know, even a transplant's not a cure. It's just a treatment option. You gotta find the fun. You gotta find the humor in it or you're just going to be depressed. Yeah, that's right. And there are many kidney care patients who go through not just one, but several transplants over Mm -hmm. their lifetime because their condition is such that their body destroys over time whatever kidney they are presented with. Definitely. I have a friend that I met in DC and she had a perfect match living donor. And within two, I think it was two and a half years, she was back on dialysis. Wow. Just because like you said, her body just didn't handle it well and it rejected after that short a period of time, but she's still, you know, she's still trucking and I give her a lot of credit because I know after my kidney never, it never even took, I fell into a huge depression and 
she had her moment, she got over it. And now she's, you know, back on the train and, you know, living her life and doing what she needs to do. So it's interesting to even see like how people handle that rejection and going through it. And some people like myself, you fall into a depression. Some people like her, they, you know, she was depressed, but she's like, you know what? Got God on my side. I'm still living. I'm still breathing and let's go. And, you know, she just has that awesome attitude and she's definitely a role model for me and how she handled it. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I couldn't imagine what it would, what it would be like to go through a rejection like that yeah. for two reasons. One, because on the personal side, you think that this is going to change your life for the better. Yep. You put all of your eggs in this basket The amount of emotional energy that you put towards the transplant is just enormous, right? Oh, yeah. You you start making plans. It's like, hey, with this new transplant, I can go to New Zealand or or whatever. Yep. You you hit the nail on the head with that one. And then it doesn't happen. And, and And sometimes it's even worse than it was before. Very much so in my case, yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. And so that's part of it. And then there's the other part. It's like, what about, what about the donor? Oh yeah. Yeah. Because then now you feel responsibility for basically eating up and destroying this perfectly good kidney. It could have, I mean, you feel like the other person should have just kept that kidney, right? You, you feel like you accidentally took a knife to them and cut out their kidney and threw it in the trash, right? And it's like, oh yeah, and that has to hurt too. Oh, it do- it it definitely took a toll. I mean, when I got the call, I was sound asleep. It was it came through on my cell phone, and then I answered the phone. I thought it was a joke because I hadn't been listed very long, and I'm like, I know with my blood type, I'm like at least a four to five year wait. And I even said to her, I'm like, wait a minute, how is this happening? And uh, she goes, all I can tell you is that when we get a little kidney, we try to match it to a little person. And because you're smaller and petite, it'll be a perfect kidney for you. And I'm a little person. And I'm trying to put two and two together. And I'm just thinking, oh, it's maybe an adult who's like me, who's very petite and, you know, smaller. It was. Um, I found out later it was a two-year-old child. So that when I found that out and it, you know, it was a, a... about a year and a half later, I found it out. I was devastated. Like you said, I was like, oh my God, you know, the family had a hard enough time deciding if they were going to be, you know, if he was going to be a donor. We were on our way to the hospital and we got a phone call. You might want to turn around. The family has changed their mind. They're not going to donate his organs. They're going to, you know, they're not going to do it yet. So we came home, we waited, I think it was about nine o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night, we got the call that they had, they had signed the paperwork and they were going to let him be a donor. And we didn't, like I said, at the time, I did not know who it was. I did not know how old the donor was, but I, my mom and I, I remember when we got turned around, we went to Walmart and we bought thank you cards that we could have the, you know, the hospital give to the family. And I don't know if that they ever got, if they got the cards, I don't even remember if we filled them out at that point. But we did, we actually went and bought cards because we were just like, without your, your sacrifice, basically, this wouldn't be happening for us. I mean, I called my mom at work as soon as I got off the phone and my mom started sobbing at work 
and you know her co-workers were like you know what happened and it was like happy tears like oh my god this is finally happening i had the surgery in the like the super early morning hours another gentleman got the second kidney and the only reason they knew mine never took is because his kidney started immediately making urine and mine was doing nothing hmm. So the doctor went back in and tried to, like, as he said, wake it up to try to reposition it, see if that would help. It just never took. So that was just devastating personally. Cause like you said, I had made plans in my head. I was like, I'm going to go travel. I'm going to backpack Europe, which has been a dream of mine since I was in high school. I'm not going to have to be stuck to a machine. I'm going to go and get like more education. I'm going to get a full-time job. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And within four, 72 hours, 96 hours, it all came, you know, it was like a mirror shattering. Everything just fell apart. I ended up in the hospital when I came, I came home, was on the PD. I knew something wasn't right on day three because it was really painful. I'd never had it before. I had a visiting nurse come. He looked at my leg and was like, your leg doesn't look right either. You really need to go back. I was in the hospital for four months. Due to complications, I, I had eight surgeries that summer, almost died three times. My parents were called in the middle of the night twice that they had to come up and say goodbyes because they didn't think I was going to make it. And then I got home. I ended up with an ileostomy because of uh, one of the surgeries. Somehow, some way, a bowel got nicked. Went back to have that reversed, was in the hospital two more months because of complications. Came home about two weeks after coming home. I fell down the stairs because I was just so weak. Ended up in the hospital for two more months. Had to have surgery because I had a huge hematoma form on my back. So by the time everything from the day I was called to the last day in the hospital, I was down about 60 pounds. I was a walking skeleton. Um, fell into a really deep depression because like you said, I had, you know, already planned for what I was going to do with this new kidney and it was not going to happen. And I was sick and I did not feel well. And then when I found out who the donor was, I was even more devastated. I'm like, Oh my God, this two-year-old lost his life. And my body couldn't do anything with the gift of life he gave me. And it was devastating. And um, I, I just felt so bad for the family. And there's still days where waves of guilt will wash over me. They made the ultimate sacrifice of, for their son, for their nephew, for their brother. And yeah, many other people were helped. But my journey with his kidney never t- started. And I was like, well, it could have it just went to someone else. Maybe he'd be living, his kidney would be living in someone else. If they just hadn't thought of me, maybe that, that gift of life would still be working for someone else. So it's definitely an emotional roller coaster. the whole process. Um, you get, you have so many hopes and dreams and they get shattered and the guilt and the sorrow and sympathy you feel for the donor family. That's another reason why, you know, not just because of my condition, but like the trauma from my first transplant where I'm kind of leery of going for a second one. It's like, you know, is my body going to reject another one? Is it going to take? And then, you know, within a year or two, it's just like you said, my my own body's attacked this gift of life. So it's definitely a hard thing to go through. 
transplant is a very hard for some people. You like they have their kidney 10, 20 years before it, it eventually just doesn't work anymore. Other people like myself, it's immediate. Other people like my friend, it's within a year or two. And hers came from her brother. And I know she carries guilt of that, that she, that her brother went through surgery for her. And now it, it, it doesn't really mean anything because she's back on dialysis. I know she carries a lot of guilt about that, that her brother went through all of that for her. And it, it for the most part was for nothing. I, I can't imagine the amount of emotional resilience Oof. that is required. There's- yeah, it, it's a journey. I mean, there's there's definite highs and there's definite lows. Do you want to end with what keeps you going? What gives you the resilience that you need so frequently? I was diagnosed in high school. So for me, the goal in high school was to walk the stage at graduation. And I did that. And then I said, okay, I want to go to college. I want to walk the stage in college. And then when I found out my college doesn't like individually announce people, I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to go to graduation and sit there. Through. And my mom's like, oh, no. My dad's like, oh, no. Especially my mom, though. She's like, we didn't go through the tearful nights of you struggling to get work done to not see you walk. So I walked at my college graduation and then I actually had a second college graduation. I stayed a fifth year and I got a second bachelor's. So we had a smaller graduation. I went to a satellite campus for my fifth year to complete my English bachelor's. So there the the head of the English department actually recognized the three people graduated with English degrees and our names were said. And because we had had her as a professor, she spoke a little about who we were in class. So that was pretty cool. So that was my next goal was my college degree. And then I wanted to be a teacher. So at first I was going to go through the ed department and I was like, you know, it's really hard to get into their ed department. I said, I'll just get my bachelor's degrees in my subject matter, which I got history and English because I want to do social studies in English. I said, I'll go to grad school. So that was my next goal. So I went to grad school and in grad school, I interned full time at a middle school. So from eight to three every day, I was at a middle school. Then I had class every night from five to eight. And then I came home and hooked up to my dialysis machine. So I would do my schoolwork in my room, sometimes connected. And then I would get up and repeat the process. And on top of that, on weekends, I worked part-time for nine hours a day. From 6.30 in the morning to about four in the afternoon, I was working. So then I would come home, do more schoolwork, and have to do my dialysis. Graduated with my master's degree in education on time. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a full-time job. Unfortunately, at that point, the whole transplant fiasco came in. So I hadn't worked from 2010-ish to about 2014. So I had like a four-year gap. So once I started home hemo, I was like, I'm getting back to work. Started just slowly by doing subbing. And then I did a few long-term sub jobs. So I would be working full-time at school, coming home, having to eat dinner, get on my machine, grade school work, prep for the next day, and repeat the same thing. I would also work weekends sometimes because I had picked up another job as a server uh, before I started subbing. I learned that was not a smart idea to work seven days a week. So I, I quit my serving job and then I found a substitute service agency for lack of a better word. So I would bounce around to different schools and through that agency, I found the school I'm working at now. 
I just fell in love with the school. I fell in love with their schedule, the, the mission of the school, the staff, the kids, the population they had. And that's where I've now been. I'll be on my fourth year this year. Congrats. Um, so, so for me, through the whole thing, it's just been like making goals of like, this is what I want to do. This is what I need to do. And now the goal is find a full-time teaching job. Right now, I only teach one class a day, and then I'm a para for three classes a day. So the hope is to find a full-time teaching job for next school year. After that, I'd like to get my own apartment. I, I mean, I have that goal of moving out on my own, getting my own place to live. I still want to travel. I'm looking into going to Ireland because they have a vacation dialysis center. I have to pay out of pocket, but it's cheaper than going to some other countries I want to go to. And my family's from Ireland, so I want to see my heritage and where my family came from. So that's another thing I'm kind of like planning and looking forward to on my journey. I, I overcame a fear. I got on the Superman roller coaster a few years ago at Six Flags, which when I was in the hospital and I was making my, okay, this is why I need to get better goals. That was one of them. And then of course I get there. I'm like, I'm not doing it. Nope. That, that goal is going away. And then I get double dog dared and I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> so I got that goal accomplished. My next goal is to get out of a roller coaster with a loop because I've never been on one with a loop. And my friends are like, you're such a, you're, you're such a scaredy cat. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't want to fall out and die though. And they're like, you won't. And I'm like, but have you seen me get stuck in the loop? It happens. <laughs> so that's a goal. It does happen. My brother and I are kind of mini foodies. So we've taken up before COVID happened, we took up trying different like international restaurants. So once things start going more back to normal, our new normal, uh, we're going to pick that up again trying more international flavors and things. Even though I have this dialysis and kidney disease always on the forefront, it's not what defines who I am. I make my goals and I, I try to accomplish them. If I don't, it's like, okay, what can I do to accomplish it? Very early in my journey, I've learned that this can't stop me. I wasn't not going to college. I wasn't not getting my degrees. I wasn't not getting to become a teacher. I've been wanting to be a teacher since I was three. I would line up my Barbies and my, my teddy bears and I would play school. At school, I would play school. I would always be the kid who was helping their teachers like put papers and passing out papers. And, you know, I just knew from early on, that's what I wanted to do. So to actually be a teacher now, but through everything and doing it on time was a huge accomplishment. That would be the main thing I would tell other kidney patients is don't let this shatter your dreams. Don't let this take away what you want to do with life. Like, yeah, it might be harder, but there's a way to do it. Like I said, I, when I go, if I go to Ireland, I've already looked into treatment options, so I don't have to bring my machine with me. Does it make it harder? Yes. But does it make it possible? Absolutely. Look for the silver lining. That, that's the big thing is like you, you still have your life. You should still do what you want with it. It might be different. It might be more difficult. It might take longer, but it's possible. I never thought on dialysis I would be able to take a weekend away. I went to Vermont last year on spring break. I just was really careful with my, my diet and my fluid intake, and I didn't bring my machine. I was like, you know, I'm going for a weekend. I'm not worrying about it. This is my weekend. When I went to D.C., I had to skip three days, which is not recommended. But I got my approval from my nurse and my doctor. And I just watched what I ate and what I drank. And when I came home, I actually weighed less than what I did when I went because I had been so careful. 
about my diet and my fluids. I'm, I've just learned, don't let things stop you. Don't let this stop you. You still have a life. You still have your dreams and your goals, and there's nothing to stop you to do them but yourself. This is an excuse. It's all up to you and your mindset. Stephanie, that was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. It was absolutely beautiful, and I can't wait to share this with the world. This is one of the most beautiful conversations that I think I've ever had. Wow, thank you. It's definitely an honor to me to be able to do this and tell my story and help others, especially those who are just starting their journey. It's a scary journey to start, but once you learn more, it it just becomes a part of your life. Thank you again. You truly are that special patient. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. That was the very special Stephanie Shabanovitz generously sharing with us her journey through PD, an attempted transplant, HD, and patient advocacy. This interview was conducted in August of 2020. Thank you for joining us. I'm Nath Rambach. This was My Third Kidney.